On April 7th, the American state of Wisconsin held an election to decide who would be the Democratic Party's nominee for the U.S. presidential election in November 2020. The days leading up to the election were chaotic, with the state's Democratic governor calling for a postponement of the statewide election out of public health concerns and the state's Republican-controlled legislature challenging this order. Ultimately, the election went ahead, and health officials noted that to date, at least 19 people infected with COVID-19 in the state can trace their exposure to the election. The following week, on April 15th, a very differently run election took place in South Korea. All 300 seats in South Korea's unicameral legislature were up for grabs, and South Koreans went to the polls in greater numbers than they had since 1992 to elect a new National Assembly. Meticulous plans have been made, including measures to ensure that voters would be able to maintain social distancing at polling stations, that voting booths would be regularly wiped down, and self-quarantined citizens could vote after polling stations were closed to regular voters. Perhaps equally impressive was the outcome, a landslide victory for President Moon Jae-in's Democratic Party, which now controls 180 seats in Parliament, a full three-fifths of the chamber. Our guest today will discuss the ramifications of how both South Korea held the election and what the political impact of the results would be for the incumbent administration. This episode is an excerpt from a public webinar on April 16th. With no further delay, here is KAI's Troy Stangerone, Social Distancing in Washington, D.C., to moderate the web discussion. We all know this was an important election in South Korea, but with much of the world still dealing with the outbreak of COVID-19, it's also an election that has resonance for other democracies as they consider how to hold elections during these trying times that we're all going through these days. To discuss all of these issues, I'm very glad that we have former National Assemblyman Song Ho Chang, Kong and Sun, and Scott Snyder. National Assemblyman Song is currently the Managing Director of East Asia Strategy at Fiscal Note. Kong and Sun, who is joining us today from Seoul, is the Deputy Managing Editor of Diplomacy and National Security at the Chosun Ilbo. Prior to that, she was here in Washington, D.C. as the Bureau Chief for the Chosun Ilbo. And Scott Snyder, of course, is the Senior Fellow for Korea Studies and the Director of the Program on U.S.-Korea Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Ms. Kong, the Conservative Party coming into this election up until very recently had been actually quite divided since the impeachment of Park and Hay. What do you think the result, which clearly I think is probably disappointing for the Conservative Party, what is their future as an electoral force in South Korea after this? Well, I think it's a little too early to say anything about the future of the political party. But as we have seen, the numbers says lots of things about the Korean Conservative Party. I guess this is the message for the conservative party. You have to be prepared more, just uniting of or different factions. It's not everything about the politics. They have to show what they will do for people, what they will do for the country. That was not very clear before people were going to the polling station. I want to build on what Insun was talking about with regard to the opposition party performance, because I think that what is really notable is that the leadership of the Conservative Party was hit so hard with losses by Hwang Yo-an, Oh Se-hoon, and Na Kyung-won. And so it basically means that the Conservatives are in some disarray, and it's really going to require new faces as a way of moving forward. And the challenge there is the other interesting race where we saw the former Conservative Party leader Hong Junpyo winning as an independent in Tegu. 
And so that's going to be a very interesting sub-issue in terms of the dynamics within the conservative establishment, because Hong Junpyo, of course, ran in the last presidential election. He now doesn't have much uh, competition for potential leadership among conservatives, and yet conservatives are going to need a new face if they're going to be able to compete effectively in 2022. I really agree with Scott that conservatives need some new faces other than the one that we got used to. They have to show that they reform something. They reform or renew something. So there should be something new in terms of people or in terms of ideology or in terms of causes. You really need to provide something new. Scott, there were a lot of new parties and new candidates in this election. One thing that I think of interest is that we had Young Ho running as the first North Korean for an actual congressional seat. How did Mr. Tay do? There were other North Koreans in this election running as well. How did they do? I think that it's widely known and been widely headlined from the election that Young Ho won his race in his Gangnam district. And so that is the first electoral constituency that will be represented by someone who came from North Korea. The number of North Korean refugees in the National Assembly is also at a historic high because Chi Sung-ho was selected as a proportional representative for the opposition conservative party. The efforts to try to establish a North Korean refugee party the party itself did not do very well in the election, and so that produced no particular electoral benefit. But there are now two former North Koreans who are part of the National Assembly, and it'll be very interesting to see how they go about representing both their constituents and managing their identities as players at the National Assembly level in South Korea. Do you expect that they'll have a higher profile on North Korea issues and be able to have maybe some influence on North Korea policy? Well, it would make sense that as people with that background would be go-to people within their parties. It's almost like having an issue specialization. But of course, the big notable factor is that these two North Korean defectors are part of the opposition. Essentially, they are now voices that the ruling party will have to contend with because those voices have been amplified. It's going to be very hard for the ruling party to marginalize those particular voices on North Korea-related issues. But at the same time, their direct impact on policy making in the South Korean government is going to be diminished by the fact they're part of the opposition. So something with Song, there was one other significant change in this election. The voting age was lowered to 18. We haven't really seen the demographic data yet, but how important is the younger generation in terms of electoral competition to both political parties in South Korea going forward? Generally speaking, the lowering of the voter age to 18 favor of the Democratic Party, I think. The number is about 550,000 the eight years old voter have a right to vote in this election. This is 1.2% of all voters. And many under 18 was involved in the Park Geun-hye impeachment campaign. Most of them are supportive of the Democratic Party. However, the number of young people has dropped sharply in Korea due to low birth rate. And the number of people that are 60 and older has increased relatively. So those in their 60s and older accounted for 12 million, which is 7 point something percent of all of voters. 
They prefer conservative parties such as the Future United Party. In terms of demographics alone, conservative opposition party is in much more favorable position in this election because 60s and older have much higher turnout than younger generation. The demographic the impact is not that big, I think. Scott, turning to the actual like implications of this election, in the last National Assembly, the Democratic Party of Korea had a plurality, but not a majority. Now they have, if I remember correctly, I think it's three-fifths of the seats. What does this mean for President Moon's agenda going forward? Well, I think the ruling party is going to take this as a mandate. The Moon administration's agenda is going to get a shot in the arm. The complicated aspect is that Moon himself only has two years left. Mm -hmm. And so that means he has a very short, relatively, period of time to try to implement an agenda from judicial reform to continuing work on North Korea to economic policy before the next election begins. And so I think the interesting thing is that on the one hand, Moon can claim a kind of mandate, but on the other hand, the competition to be his successor within the ruling party is probably not far off. And so on the one hand, we have this moment of cohesion and really success, but it can possibly very rapidly shift as individuals within the ruling party who are beneficiaries of this big win start to think about their own interests and future looking forward to 2022. I wanna add one other thing. Clearly, the main issue here that shaped the election outcome was the perception that the COVID crisis had been handled well. It really drowned out all the other issues. I think that in particular on economic policy, uh, the broader trend toward uh, public sector financial support for the public that has been part of the Moon administration's economic policy agenda it's going to benefit from the broader global trend. And I think it's going to possibly reinforce the Moon administration's desires to use public sector financing as a critical means by which to try to improve the South Korean economy. Scott, one last question on this, but taking more of a foreign policy perspective. There's been a series of issues. You know, we have more challenges with maybe North Korea now with the talks sort of on hold. There's obviously been the trade disputes between South Korea and Japan. Does this election create any additional space for President Moon to try and deal with these issues, or does it have very little impact on those going forward? I think the election result does remove a constraint, a domestic political constraint on Moon as he pursues foreign policy. And it probably is going to strengthen pressure on Moon from his constituents to deliver on some of the core issues that they care about. And North Korea would be one of those issues. And so I can imagine that the Moon administration might feel like it can push harder on trying to find ways to promote economic integration with North Korea. That is an issue that potentially can generate some friction with the United States as the U.S. is still committed to a sanctions, a maximum pressure policy on North Korea. So we'll have to wait and see how that goes. And then also, I think that the burden sharing issue obviously is still out there. It's a very complicated issue. On the one hand, President Moon now has sufficient support within the National Assembly to force a deal through if he were to decide that he wanted to do that. So he's actually, in a way, empowered, but at the same time, he's empowered in a way that carries with it a lot of political risk. Because if he 
gives up too much in the eyes of the Korean people or exceeds too much to President Trump's demands on burden sharing, then he and his party will own that. And so we're at this moment of transition. I think it'll be very interesting in the coming weeks to see whether or not it's possible for an agreement to be concluded and then possibly ratified by the lame duck assembly or whether this ends up being taken up in the next national assembly or whether or not the moon administration feels that they can wait out trump because we're only a few months away from our own elections in november national assemblyman song you've talked about and we've mentioned that this was a significant victory for the democratic party South Korea only has a single term presidency. So President Moon is ineligible to run again when the next presidential election comes up in 2022. How should the Democratic Party of Korea feel about their chances of retaining the Blue House in 2022? Or do you think that these results will probably have very little impact on that election? Now, the leaders in Democratic Party strongly believe the candidates from their party will win again for the 2022 president election. Democratic Party has many candidates, including the Lee Nagyan, former prime minister in Korea, and Lee Zemyang now is Gyeonggi province governor and Bagwonsu mayor of Seoul. But pandemic will end someday. And after this pandemic, the people will choose the next president with how well the government and the ruling party manage economic policy and the foreign policy and so on. So things can completely change the political environment in two years. No one knows what will happen during that time. It'll be a couple of weeks before we know, and there's already been a couple of stories about whether there will be you know, any increase in uh, COVID cases in South Korea from going through with the election. But setting that aside, you know, having seen the way it, it ran, are there any lessons you think that other countries can learn from South Korea's experience? You know, what is really mm -hmm. impressive to me is how the National Election Commission works to integrate the best practices as espoused by the KCDC, the Korean Center for Disease Control, mm -hmm. into the process. And so in some ways, I think what's really interesting about the Korean election process is that actually is a triumph of bureaucratic management at a moment when it seems like everything is becoming more politicized. I myself feel the same way. I mean, usually when you go out to vote, it's totally up to if you are willing to do. But in this case, you have seen some hurdle that you have never experienced. So I felt like a real need to do because there's some other difficulties that made me not to vote. So I feel more responsibility to show my duty or my responsibility and my right to vote. Could the panel share your perspective on what implications this election has on ROK-China relations going forward? If you step back and look at the Moon administration's policy toward China in its first three years, really there hasn't been much progress in the relationship. And we have to ask ourselves, is that because of a domestic political constraint or is it because of some other structural issue in the South Korea-China relationship? And I don't see the problems in the South Korea-China relationship right now as a function of domestic politics, primarily because South Korean public opinion towards China is relatively cautious. And actually what happens in the South Korea-China relationship going forward 
I think is going to depend less on the composition of the National Assembly than the nature of the approach that Xi Jinping takes towards South Korea. And so in that sense, I think that what's interesting is that Moon is operating from a strong position on foreign policy issues domestically, but on almost every issue that he faces in order to make some progress, it's also going to require cooperation or some changes on the part of his counterparts. And so we'll have to see how that plays out. With South Korea's success with COVID-19 and the successful election, uh, is it possible for South Korea to turn this into foreign policy capital? I guess that's possible. I guess that's possible because President Trump gave a call to President Moon and they discussed how Korea got over or handled the situation. This is uncertain situation for every country. So we are equal in that sense. So if you have more advanced experience in your country, then you can just relay it to other country. That's something new and something that we have never imagined, but I think it's a good foreign policy asset that we can explore. I have a question here from former Congressman Donald Manzullo. He asks, what implications can American governors and the president learn from the manner in which the elections were conducted in Korea? U.S. states have 50 systems with varying rules, but Korea has more of a unified system. This is really a question of the applicability of the approach in a more centralized system to lessons that can be applied in a relatively decentralized system where states have responsibility. But one thing that I would say is that as we have seen in terms of the unique means by which the U.S. has been managing the COVID crisis so far, there is an opportunity for the federal government to identify and disseminate best practices, especially, for instance, the Federal Election Commission could borrow from the National Election Commission in Korea to make recommendations, and then it's on the states to decide how they want to implement those. But in terms of a seamless national elections implementation process, like what we saw in Korea over the course of the past couple of days, no, it's a different system here. Do you see this election having any impact on the U.S. DPRK talks rather than simply inter-Korean relations? I would say it depends on how North Korea responds. And right now, North Korea is closed to talks with either Washington or Seoul. I do think that the strong position of President Moon makes him a more authoritative potential interlocutor for North Korea. And it's really a question of whether Kim Jong-un sees any benefit from trying to go down that road, because so far he has not. I also have a question from Tom Conyer. I'll sort of, because it's fairly long, summarize that, you know, basically the COVID-19 pandemic sort of changed things, but ultimately has anything changed? Will Moon have to deal with trade issues of partners who are stumbling and continue to stumble at handling their health issues? Other than Moon and his party being a beneficiary from this election, what is the future in regards to the pandemic more broadly for South Korea? And I hope, Mr. Kanye, that I sort of rephrase that properly. I think that the biggest advantage that the Moon administration gained in this election is his handling of the COVID crisis gave Korean voters an opportunity to reward performance. And actually, prior to the crisis itself, there weren't many issues in the performance area that the Moon administration was going to be able to point to. And I think that that is actually what South Korean voters have yearned for for a long time, is evidence of performance. And obviously, they're willing to reward performance. 
So now the challenge going forward is as the crisis eases, there's going to be a continuing demand among the South Korean public for continued performance. And so it'll be interesting to see how the Moon administration organizes to meet that expectation. Watching how the Moon administration handled this pandemic, I keep comparing with the fairy tale in the Gun administration. At the time, the fairy tale were instant. At the time, people could watch the fairy tale, which carried hundreds of high school students sink into the sea on the TV. And the maritime police, they were unable to rescue the people. No one knew where the president was during the day. In this pandemic case, President Moon has taken the lead in the spread of the virus from the outset. And uh, the fairy tale, there was uh, more than 300 deaths. And uh, this pandemic is uh, 229. So from this incident and the pandemic, we have learned that the government must conduct quick response to the crisis. Those are key things for the successful government to have, I think. That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to former National Assemblyman Song Ho-chang, Deputy Editor Gang In-sun, Scott Snyder, and to you listeners for tuning in. You can watch the full video of the event on KEI's YouTube channel, which you can also find in the description of this episode. Our next webinar event is on April 30th on the impact of COVID-19 on North Korea. There is at this stage no doubt that the country has been hit badly by the disease, and the country is unlikely to have the resources to address its consequences. Moreover, there will be the economic consequences of such a health crisis. Already, there are stories of panic buying in Pyongyang. Join Executive Director of National Committee on North Korea, Keith Luce, Brookings Institution's Senior Fellow, Jung H. Park, and KAI Senior Director, Troy Stangerone, for this timely discussion. You can find the link to the RSVP in the description of this episode. We'll be back next week with more commentary analysis on all things Korea. Until then, keep up the hand washing.